0: And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. All right, it's week two of "You Ask for It," which is our Q and A series where we asked you a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, to submit any question you want about the Bible, life, faith, spirituality, cultural events, whatever. And our effort in this series is to kind of uh, rapid fire go through these questions and see what the Bible says about them. So last weekend, we looked at some pretty technical questions, honestly, about the Bible, a lot of background, a lot of history, a lot of things there. This week is a much more practical in the way that the questions came in, and so we're going to look at some practical spiritual life questions this morning. We've got five questions in total. The first two, uh, we will sort of combine into one because they go together really well. It worked out great. And then there are two shorter questions that deal with sort of the same topic, really a foundational faith question. And then we'll end with a a different type of spiritual life question. So we'll jump right into it and get through these questions here this morning. Really practical spiritual life questions. So I'll mention the first two individually, but we'll answer them again together. So here's question number one that we'll look at today. It is this. When we sin, God says he's angry with us, yet still loves us and will forgive us. How does all this work? It does seem like a lot. It does seem like it doesn't seem to go together, but we'll see how it all does. The second question that is connected to this is how does jesus death give me redemption of sin redemption is the key word there that we're going to focus on so again we'll look at these two separate questions kind of in the same answer as we flow through the these first two again how does god's anger love and forgiveness work together and how does jesus death give me redemption of sin we're going to look at these two uh, in one The the way that the actual first question was written on the paper, uh, it started out by saying, if you've done something wrong, you know, God says he's angry. So the first part of this uh, answer to this question uh, is found in Romans 3, verse 23. It's this, it seems like an obvious statement, but we don't always want to deal with it. It says, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So the first thing when we look at this idea of the cross or salvation or a life of faith is to understand, recognize, and acknowledge sin. That we're all on an even playing field. We all deal with this th- little three-letter word that has huge implications on everyone. We are all susceptible and fallen into sin. But it says here in this verse that we are short. We fall short of God's glorious standard might help if we define what that means. What is God's standard? What, what, is, what are we trying to attain? What are, what's the goal here? And really, God's glorious standard is what I would call moral perfection in thought, word, and deed. That's a pretty high standard. That's a pretty tall bar. God's standard in Romans 3 is moral perfection in thought, word, word and deed. We see this throughout the scripture. I'm going to read quite a bit, but I'm going to reference some here that we're not going to read through altogether. But Leviticus 19 verse 2, God tells Israel, he says, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We even sang it this morning, holy, perfect, sinless, you know, spotless. He says, that's the standard I have for my people. And you would think, well, that's just the Old Testament. That's, that's pre-Jesus, right? The problem is Jesus basically says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 48, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Then Peter, later on in 1 Peter 1, he quotes Leviticus 19 and says, you should be holy because God is holy. So we have a problem here because as Paul says in Romans, no one can meet that standard. We've all sinned and fallen short of that standard. Now you might say, well, I have an objection, objection, your honor. It's not fair that that's the standard. Perfection's too high a mark. It's too tall. It's, it's too much to ask. We, God knows it's impossible, so why does he ask it? It doesn't seem to make any sense. It's not fair. And I would say, well, you would say that. You might think that, but that's really how we live life. If one little thing at your job goes wrong, why do you get upset? Because you didn't think or want that thing to go wrong. If someone else's mistake messes something up in your life or your situation or, you know, someone cuts you off and it causes you to crash, well, that's a mistake, right? That's below the standard of perfect driving that we would hope other people would have and that we say we have for ourselves, so we get upset with any sort of little mistake. Even on Red Sunday when there's a penalty on the Chiefs, why do we get upset? Because we want perfection from the team. No false starts, no offsides, no pass interference. Why? Because it hurts the team. It sets them back. And so we, we, we look at this in our everyday life, if we, even if we don't realize it, our standard for most things is perfection. And God's standard for us is the same thing. So it's not that it's unfair, it's that it's just sort of on a different cosmic spiritual level. And so just like we get angry at mistakes, God does too. You go back up to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and here's where we get into the anger part, okay? It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That word wrath is, is a big word there. It's, you know, this anger. But it's not just God gets angry or upset, but it's God's holy, righteous anger that then leads to holy, righteous judgment. That's God's wrath because, again, sin is breaking God's law. It's not measuring up to his standard of perfection, which is why this angers him. In addition to this, um, because God is completely holy and sinless, he must punish sin. If he did not punish sin, he would not be holy anymore or he would not be just, or he, it would be unjust for him to not punish sin. We read this in Romans 1, verse 32. It says they know God's justice requires that those who do these things, or who sin, deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. So we might think that God is unfair because he punishes sin, but in fact, it's completely fair for God to punish any and all sin. Think about it in terms of, of a courtroom. If a judge let every criminal go free, we would not think that is a good judge. That is an unjust judge. They, they did that crime. They were caught on tape. They were caught in the act. We know they did it. If you're going to let them go? That's not just, so God can't behave that way either. In a similar way, you know, God can't just let my sin go and punish you for your sin. That also doesn't count either. A judge who did that would not be a just judge either. Two people commit the same crime, this one gets off and this one has to go, gets the book thrown at him. We would say that's a bad judge. They are not just, they are not fair or righteous. So God is justified in his anger towards sin, even though we don't like it, and he's just to punish sin. So, In in many ways, some punishment for sin is like on a lower level, like there's a natural consequences for our actions, for our sin. Sometimes those are physical or emotional or relational, or even in society there are effects that we see of sin. Society is fractured, relationships are ruined, our lives are torn apart because of sin. But ultimately, sin has an ultimate consequence. We see this in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. From the very beginning, the very first sin recorded, Genesis 3, right? They ate of the fruit. So it's not about eating the fruit, okay? So it's not saying fruit is bad. So that's not an excuse, okay? You need the apple apple a day, okay? however it was the act of disobedience that was the issue it could have been anything it could have been don't jump on that trampoline in the garden of eden you could do anything else but jump on that trampoline and if they did that it would be the same as eating the fruit of the tree doesn't matter what the thing is it was the act of disobedience against god's clear command that was sin it resulted literally in death there was no death on the earth until that point but it brought death into this world and it leads to if sin then is not paid for which we'll get to in just a second uh, then it leads to eternal death eternal separation from God but here's the good news which is the gospel and that is despite our sin God still loves us and will forgive us So is he angry at our sin? Yes. Is he going to punish unforgiven sin? Yes. But because he loves us, even despite our rebellion against him, he makes a way to rescue us from our sin. A couple of references in scripture here. Romans 5 says that while we were enemies of God, Christ died for the ungodly. So who who does that? Who sacrifices themselves for their enemy? No one does that. We sacrifice ourselves to fight against the enemy. But God did the inverse of that. For his enemies, he made a way to save them. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the entire Bible. You'll see it all over, you know, all over Arrowhead Stadium. These these signs in the end zone. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. That's what we deserve, right? Justly, but have everlasting life. And in verse 17, Jesus goes on to say, I didn't come to the world to condemn the world. I came to save the world. So it's out of love that God makes a way for our salvation through his son. Jeremiah 31 3, God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I'm going to draw you to myself. Now, in Jeremiah 31, the context here is God's people have disobeyed him and that he's predicting. You're going to go into exile. You're going to be the slaves of another group of people in Babylon for decades. So you're going to be judged and punished for your sin. I'm going to reveal my wrath in some measure to you, but then he says, "But I love you, and I'm going to draw you back to myself." And he ultimately did that through his son Jesus. And here's where we see that. John, first John, excuse me, First John, chapter one, verses eight and nine. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much wickedness? All of it. All wickedness. Which sins? Like The small sins, fine. Will God forgive the big sins? Yes. Will God forgive the sins I try to hide from everybody? Yeah, even though you can't hide them from him, he knows them, so that's a... Futile effort anyway, but the ones that you try to keep, the ones that you try to keep in secret and hide, the ones that you try to justify, the big, the uncombackable from sins, I can't come back from that, there's no way. All, all unrighteousness, all wickedness, he will cleanse us and forgive us from all of them. It doesn't matter how long ago you committed that sin or how how bad it was, it doesn't matter what the thing was, or on your hierarchy of what's good or bad, you know, it doesn't matter. He will cleanse us from all wickedness and forgive us of all of our sins. That is how, really, again, God's anger, love, and forgiveness sort of all work together, okay? But then we get to this idea of redemption in this same vein here. What does that mean? What what about redemption? What does that have to do with the cross? But redemption is this idea of a purchase price for something. So you redeem a good at the store by giving your money to them. You know, that you, you know, Jeff Bezos has all of our money from Amazon. We click, 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 and he's like, bring it in, baby. Yeah, ching, 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 you know. So that's redemption. Or you think about a coupon. You redeem the value by turning in that coupon. So that's what cr- the cross is. It's redemption for our sins. And here's what we see about that. Jesus says this in John eight thirty four. He says, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. So you may not think of it this way. Sometimes we think, no, in my sin, I'm free to do what I want. Jesus says, in fact, in your sin, you are a slave to that sin. It controls you. It owns you. And so there's a purchase price to free you from slavery to sin. A price must be paid. And as we've already discussed, we see that our sin not only enslaves us to sin, but it makes us indebted to God. A price must be paid to pay him back. We are owned by sin, and we owe God because of our sin. And as we looked at earlier, Leviticus 19, Hebrews 9, they say, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. You see, under Jewish law, the price that must be paid is a life for a life. God demands your life for your sin, but the law you know, permitted you could sacrifice an animal in the place of yourself. And the animal sacrifice would suffice for that sin. But Peter says this about our salvation now. 1 Peter 1, 18, he says, For you know that God paid a ransom, that he redeems us, that's our redemption. He paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. There, what, there must be a price paid for our sin. Our redemption must be paid for and purchased. Jesus on the cross did that. His blood paid that price. But the question is, how, how could he do that? Like, if I can't pay that price, if I can't redeem myself, if I can't, you know... I can't. Am I not, it's not like I'm an indentured servant. If I do enough, then I can be freed from sin. No, the more sin I do, the more I'm enslaved. The more sin I do, the more I'm indebted to God. I can never pay that penalty. But how can Jesus do that if I can't? Well, Paul tells us in one more verse, 2 Corinthians five twenty-one. He says, "God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness." Of God, This is very foundational so far, and you, I, I kind of know it's by heart, but it's just a good sort of reminder here of what the cross is. The beauty of the cross of Christ is that our debt to God is unpayable, but yet God pays the debt that we owed him, himself. He paid the penalty for our sin that we owed to him. That is insane. That's crazy that God would do that, but that's how much God loves you is that he was willing to send his only son to be the payment to free you from sin because you owed him for your sin. And you couldn't outwork it, you couldn't earn it, but Christ came and did that because it says here he, he had no sin. So he checked that box because the sacrifices that were offered even in the Old Testament had to be perfect, spotless. You can't, it can't be like a sick lamb that you offer. That's not allowed. It can't have like a blemish or bruises or a broken leg. Well, you know, we were, we're going to kill it anyway. Might as well sack it. I was like, nope. It's got to be like the top, the best. You've got to offer that to me for your sin. Jesus came, sinless, spotless, perfect sacrifice to give himself to free us from sin. God bought you back with the blood of his son. That's how crazy in love God is with you. Despite your sin, your failure, your failure to measure up to his standard that must be judged, God made that way to free us, forgive us, and redeem us from our sin pretty Good way to start, I think, right? So, there we go. Uh, the next two questions are pretty short, but they kind of go off of that. So, we'll tackle these pretty quickly and then end with another sort of different topic altogether. The third question that was asked is If you're going to lead someone to Christ, how would you instruct them to pray the sinner's prayer? The first thing I would say is review what we just talked about because you're going to have to get them to understand that to lead in with that point of decision. So, we have to first understand that without Christ, I'm a sinner under God's wrath apart from him. I have to acknowledge that. And then I have to see that he is my perfect, sinless savior who gave his life in place for mine to free me from the penalty of sin. And then he rose from the dead to be victorious over sin and death. So we have to kind of get there. Uh, And then we can get to Romans 10, 9, and 10, where it tells us about the importance of this idea of a, a quote unquote sinner's prayer, Paul writes in Romans ten: If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. We think about the ABCs of salvation. You ever heard of that? The ABCs of salvation: A, admit you're a sinner. Okay. B, believe in Christ for salvation, and then you're saved. But then C is confess with your mouth. You make that open declaration, He's my Savior and Lord. But we I think I think here's the thing. I'm gonna add a D to this. It's the A, B, C, D's of salvation. Too often we stop at admit, believe, confess, and then we walk away and we're not really any different. The D is dedicate yourself to actually following Jesus after you've made that decision. D is the most important one. Like circle, we always, like on test, I'd always, if I didn't know the answer, just guess C. If you don't, just guess D on this one, okay? I've admitted my sin. I believed in Jesus. I confess him as Savior, but it's the Lord part that we struggle with the most. But that's the D. Determine in your heart to live for him. Now, you're going to do it imperfectly. I'm going to do it imperfectly. Whoever you're praying with or talking to or leading to Christ, they're not going to get it right every time, all the time. That's not possible. But that's where the grace of Jesus comes in. That's what the cross does. And so the D there is determined to put him first, love him most, and live for him. Now, the question is, when I'm leading someone to Christ, how do I get them there? And the first part of that question is, it's not always the same. You might have an interaction with someone that you've just met, and they are ripe and ready to receive Christ. Home run, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, you can do that so quick. But in other cases it might be someone that you know really well it's going to take maybe months of conversation maybe years of relationship building to get them to that point to where they see this need for christ where then you can pray with them to start that faith journey it is not a cookie cutter thing you cannot force this on anyone even god himself doesn't force himself on anyone so how do you think you're going to be better than god in that so you have to just gauge every situation every relationship as it comes but then lead them down this path of recognizing that their sinfulness needs a savior and his name is jesus and then get them there and then walk with them to as they dedicate their lives to following him again it's not a simple step one step two step three to get them there but once we get them there let's walk with them to determine to help put jesus first and then a, a fourth question that we'll spend just a couple minutes on was an interesting one one that i've heard asked a lot and it's this would jesus have forgiven judas if he repented i could do a one-word answer but i'll do one word and then explain it for just a minute the answer is yes okay if he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness that includes judas he's not he's not unique right he sinned we think oh it's worse than any other sin really it's not It just took a different form but he will and we can even see in the same time frame of judas betraying jesus how that's true in Luke 23, on the cross, Jesus says to those uh, crucifying him, he says, Father, forgive them. Okay, if he's, gonna, if he's going to forgive those that are actively crucifying him, murdering him, uh, he'll, he'll forgive the one that put him in that spot. Not a stretch to think that. Then even next to him, the thief on the cross next to him, one of them's laughing and jeering with the crowd. The other one looks at Jesus and says, hey, I don't get this, but I, I believe, and I want to I, I, you know, welcome me into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly I tell you that today you'll be with me in paradise. Notice the thief didn't have to get baptized in water. Now, that's a good next step in your faith. But if you're dying on your deathbed or on your death cross, you don't have that opportunity. So it's not water baptism that saves anyone. It's not going to church that saves anyone. It's not reading a Bible that saves anyone. It's faith in Christ alone that saves anyone. So the thief on the cross, check the box. Right, the crowd crucifying him, check the box. Peter, who also abandoned Jesus in a different way than Judas, but also very deeply hurt Jesus, after the resurrection, Jesus forgave Peter. And then commissioned him to then lead the movement that we see in the book of acts and then we see later on we'll see this in a few weeks in acts chapter 9 saul who's persecuting christians left and right imprisoning them beating them jailing them he has an encounter with christ on the way to persecute more christians and jesus saves him later on paul writes in first timothy about himself he says i am the worst of all sinners so paul sees that about himself yet jesus saved him Peter abandoned Jesus in his greatest moment of need, and Jesus saved him. The thief on the cross, Jesus saved him just by an act of faith and belief in Jesus. Those that are crucifying him, he saves them, so certainly he would have saved, he would have forgiven Judas. The problem was not that Judas was not forgivable, it's that he didn't repent to the right person. So what happened is he was racked with guilt over, over turning Jesus over to the authorities that crucified him, but then he went to the men that he conspired with. And said, no, take back your blood money. I don't want it. I feel really bad about what I've done. But he didn't, it doesn't seem, go all the way uh, to repenting for his sin. In his despair, he took his own life. Now, it it makes sense why he wouldn't have waited to, to, you know, ask Jesus to forgive him personally. Because like the other disciples, he probably didn't really understand the resurrection was a real thing that was really going to happen. Like that was, that's why the disciples, when they see the resurrected Jesus, are afraid because resurrections don't happen. So Judas would be in the same boat. Unfortunately, he was so racked with guilt and so deep in despair, he didn't even try to wait it out. Oh well, if I just wait a couple days, he said he would rise, then, I can ma- then we can make it right, then we can move on. He didn't do that. And so with that, let me just pivot to this. If you find yourself in the same situation as Judas and you're just racked with guilt over your sin, don't keep it in. Don't look inward don't just beat yourself up that doesn't do any good we go to jesus we can do that any moment any time of the day day or night it doesn't matter what again what you've done where you've been what you haven't done right you can go to him and he will forgive you so we don't have to keep it in we don't have to be, you know beat ourselves up or feel bad or or live a life of guilt and condemnation that's not the way of jesus in fact paul writes in romans there is no condemnation to those in christ jesus because we don't walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We can have that freedom, and Judas could have, but unfortunately, he didn't make that opportunity. Let me try to quickly get through this last question, and then we, we will uh, be done with this. We'll be back in Acts uh, next week. We'll pick it up with a new series in Acts chapter 8 next week. Here's the last question that we'll look at for just a few minutes, and it's this. Does everyone have a spiritual gift? Then it goes on to say, how can I be certain if I have one? How can I find out what it might be? So let's look at the first part of this question first. Does everyone, every Christian, have a spiritual gift? Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 12 says this, verse 4, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of all of them. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. Now, catch verse 7. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. So the first part of that question, answered. Yes, Paul says every Christian can and does have at least a or maybe multiple spiritual gifts. It is given to each of us. But then you might think, well, what are the spiritual gifts? Is there a list of them? I'm glad you asked, because there are a couple, and we'll look at them here for just a minute. So here, there's one later on in First Corinthians 12 that we'll look at here. So starting at verse 27 of First Corinthians 12, Paul says, All of you together are Christ's body, that's the church, and each of you is a part of it. Here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. Here are some of these spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. First, there are apostles. Second, prophets. Third, are teachers. Then those who do miracles. Those who have the gifts of healing. Those who can help others. Those who have the gift of leadership. Those who speak in unknown languages. Okay, so let's stop there for just one second. So you look at this list, and you might think, that's an interesting list. You might look at that list and say, that's kind of an intimidating list. Like prophecy. I don't think so, brother. You know, like, that's not, I don't have that gift. That's okay. There's a bunch of them. There's other lists that we'll get to here in just a second. You might say, apostle, no prophet, no healer, no miracles, no, like, I'm, you know, losing, you know, gifts, possible gifts here. You might say, those are not for me. And that's okay, because then Paul goes on to say this, are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. So some of those those spiritual gifts that we just listed, you might say they're not for me, I don't have those. You might be right. But based on what else Paul says around that fact are three things that we know. One, everyone, he says, is given a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. We know, number two, that no one is given every spiritual gift. Okay, And then we know, number three, not everyone is given the same spiritual gift. Because if your body was just all a bunch of right arms, it's not a very useful body. I need all the parts. Okay, And so Paul says the same thing here. But he says desire the spiritual gifts so that you can be useful for the body. Again, define that term. What does it mean? What's the most useful gift? If you remember last week, we looked at the Bible and asked, what's the best translation? And I said, the best Bible translation is the one that you're reading. I'll give a similar answer here. What's the most helpful spiritual gift for you? The ones that God has given you. Now, that might sound tricky because we haven't defined that term yet, but I want you to get that in your brain. The most helpful gift is not the one that you just want. I want the gift of, of tongues. Well, if you don't have that, that's good that you desire that, but he says desire the most helpful gifts. Desire the ones that God has gifted you with. Well, I want the gift of prophecy, the gift of teaching. Maybe those aren't your gifts. That's okay, but we desire the most helpful ones, which are the ones that God has given us to then use them. So let's then look at one more list as we begin to wrap it up here in Romans 12. So Romans 12, there's another list of spiritual gifts. Now, some of these seem very spiritual, again. Some of them seem very normal, but they're all spiritual gifts, okay? Romans 12, start at verse 4. He says, Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. In his grace, catch that, here's the key. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. We'll come back to that, so don't forget that. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. The key is to find and discover the gifts God has already given you and then use them for the benefit of others and the edification of the body of Christ. But remember, the question's not, should I use my gift? The question is, how do I find it? And the answer is maybe easier than we sometimes make it out to be. Again, sometimes we focus on these larger, bigger, more showy, more flashy spiritual gifts, but maybe God's gifted you with some other more natural, normal things that might seem like a physical thing, but if used in the right context, is a spiritual gift. An example of this uh, is in Exodus 31. There are two men named that you may have never heard of, and that's the point. Uh, These men's names are Aholiab and Bezalel. Aholiab and Bezalel. These men are craftsmen. They work with their hands. They work with tools. They make things. But what God says in Exodus 31, he says, I have filled these men with the spirit of God and given them wisdom, ability, and skill. And then he tells them these normal craftsmen who just build stuff, do stuff, make stuff, he says they're, they're going to build the tabernacle where God will talk with Moses in the desert. They're going to build that. They're going to build the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones will be so jealous of these guys right now, okay? They're going to build the altar of incense that's going to be used for worship. They're going to build the basin of water used for worship. They're going to build the candelabra used for worship. They're going to actually stitch together the garments that the high priest will wear when doing ministry, now, you would think, okay, well, that's a physical skill. But God says it's a spiritual gift. I've given them my spirit to enhance this physical skill to be used as a spiritual gift. Many times, the spiritual gifts that we seek that seem elusive are right in front of us. We can use what God has already given us to turn it into a spiritual gift a useful gift so let me ask some questions what is a skill or ability that you have that is god given what is something that you excel at doing what's a gift that you have that maybe not many have if you look again at some of these lists that we've looked at this morning some of these gifts are obviously spiritual like the gift of interpretation of tongues obviously spiritual it's got like a one track going okay but some of these are surprisingly normal aren't they Look at some of these again. The spiritual gift of helping others, that's listed as a spiritual gift, support. Serving others is a spiritual gift listed in the Bible. Encouragement is a spiritual gift listed in Scripture. Generous giving is a spiritual gift listed in Scripture. Showing kindness to people is a spiritual gift listed in Scripture. Even leadership and teaching we put like on a higher pedestal, those are not overtly spiritual gifts. Okay? Schools are full of teachers. Doesn't mean it's a spiritual gift, but it can be used as a spiritual gift. There are leadership books that fill shelves and shelves and shelves of bookstores and libraries. That's not an overtly spiritual gift, but it can be used in a spiritual way to be a spiritual gift if used in the right way with, under the spirit and leading of the Lord. So see, we've made this mystery less mysterious now. Now, I would still say, yes, seek for those other gifts that you may not have, and God may give those to you. But don't spend all your time seeking different gifts so that I want what they have, or I want to do that thing. Find out what gifts God may have already gifted you with. Find out how you can best use those gifts while you seek those other spiritual gifts. Maybe you'll get the best of both worlds. It's possible, okay? And we see, even in our midst, people that use some of these gifts that I've been talking about. Encouragement, helping, Generous giving, right? Those things, you can do those. You can be used in mighty spiritual ways that seem every day, but just like a holy ab and bezalel, I'm just building this box. It's the ark of the covenant. It's pretty important. God has gifted you to do that thing. Don't negate the little thing that God might have you do that might have a huge spiritual impact. Those. Uh, Those physical things, those physical abilities can be spiritual gifts if God has us use them for bigger plans. And God does have big plans for everyone in the room. Big plans, big goals, big dreams for you. And here's the good news. He has gifted you with exactly what you need to fulfill that plan. He's he's already got it inside of you somewhere. It's a matter of us discovering it, honing it, unlocking it, and then unleashing it to make a difference in the world. God has an assignment for you and, and for me. And for us to complete that assignment, may we just faithfully use whatever skill or gift or intuitive ability God has for us to use it in a spiritual way to benefit those around us and to edify the church. That's how we make a difference. That's the most important thing that we can do when it comes to spiritual gifts, is to find what it is God has gifted me to do and use it for his glory. That makes a difference in the world around us. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, we are thankful for and amazed by your love for us. Even as we looked at these first questions this morning, we, may we be blown away by how much you love us. That even in our rebellion and sin against you, you were willing to sacrifice your only son in our place for our sin. He paid the penalty that we must pay to free us from the bondage of sin and to pay you back the price that we paid for sinning against you. That is unthinkable love. That is unmatched love. May we know the love and the care that you have for us in giving yourself for us. May we live in that love, and may we, through our lives, point others to that love. Maybe it is a very quick conversation, an easy prayer. and Their life has changed. Praise the Lord. Maybe it is going to take some breaking down of barriers and walls. Maybe it's going to take longer conversations. Maybe it's going to kind of meander through different topics and things. But may we ultimately just live our lives in a way that points people to Jesus, to your love, your forgiveness, your faithfulness in our lives. And as we desire to make a difference in the world, may we desire spiritual gifts. May we desire whatever gifts you have for us. May, as we discover what those maybe normal seeming gifts are, may we find out how you can empower us in those gifts to use us powerfully for a greater purpose. May we not get fixated on, well, it's got to be this gift or that gift, but no, may we just see deep down how you've already gifted us, you've already trained us, you've already given us this special ability or skill that then we can hone and use for a greater spiritual purpose. Our goal is to live for you and to point other people to you. And so may we just say, God, however you want to use me, I'm open. However you want to use me, I'm willing and available to be used by you. Help us every day to seek you and to seek your will for not just 10 years from now, but for today and then for the next day. God, use us powerfully for your glory and your honor to make a difference in the world around us. And start it this week. As we leave this place today, help us to start even today to find out how you can better and best use us to make a difference in the lives of those around us. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.